Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce Senior Managing Editor for the Athletics NHL uh, coverage, um, the incredibly talented James Myrtle. Thanks so much for taking the time and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's good to be here. Thanks for uh, building me up. It's always good to hear <laughs> nice things on these shows. No, I mean, I, I know actually that you uh, helped Murat Atash, who's a friend of the show, get his job. And so you're definitely a, a big wig in, in the hockey world. So don't don't undersell yourself. Yeah, yeah. Murat's one of my, uh, he's, <clears throat> he's one of the like the feel good stories, I think, at The Athletic. We have a lot of them, but he's definitely one of them, you know, just coming from, he started as a freelancer writing one story. Mm-hmm. And he sent in, it was like a 4,000 word story about Patrick Line, And it was so detailed and so in the weeds. I, I loved it. And from that now he's, it's just amazing to see how his career's progressed and, and uh, the audience that he's built and, and how hard he's worked too. So I'm super proud of him. Uh-huh. And with that, I want to go from Murat's career a little bit to your own. And when was it, what was like kind of the moment for you that you wanted to kind of go into sports journalism. I think I read somewhere that it started kind of an undergrad at, in, in Kamloops and, and just tell us about, about your story. Yeah, I didn't, I never thought about journalism as a career really until my last year of my undergrad <clears throat> degree. And uh, I did, um, I did four years of school in creative writing and English literature. And um, when I went into university back in BC, I really, I was really into music and I wanted mm. to be a musician and I wanted to play in a band. And that was kind of, that was my passion. And um, when I went to school, I was like, I don't know what I want to do, but maybe I'll do this creative writing thing. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll write, I'll write plays and poetry and I'll study literature and I'll, I'll play in a couple bands and we'll see where it goes. Uh, then four years in, it's like, at some point I got to like get a job and like make money like normal people. I was doing, th- I was working at like, I was working at like a, as a dishwasher in a restaurant or I would work like the graveyard shift at a gas station. And I was like, I got to get it together and like figure out what I'm going to do with my life. So I came up with three possibilities for what I could do next. And one of them was to try and be a hockey writer. Hmm. And uh, obviously that's the one that I, that I ultimately chose. Um, you know, so I, I applied to the Ryerson journalism school because I knew that Bob, McK- Bob McKenzie and some other people who I really looked up to had, had gone to Ryerson. And, uh, it was the only school I applied to for grad school. And, um, you know, my mom had grown up in Toronto and I had spent a lot of time in the city when I was a kid. So Toronto had a lot of appeal to me. And, you know, looking back, I probably should have went to Toronto for undergrad. I just, I was 17 and I wasn't quite ready to, to make the jump. Um, so yeah, so I applied, I got into the the grad program at that point. I think I was 22, um, you know, and a lot of people that are in the grad program at Ryerson are in their second career and they've, they've already, you know, done things in the industry. And I was, if not the youngest person, I was pretty close. And, uh, that's, that's really what started it for me was making that decision that I'm going to try and be a hockey writer. Basically it was why I was moving to Toronto. And I thought it was pretty far-fetched. Like I thought best case scenario for me, I would be covering the Canvas Blazers or I would be covering the Brandon Wheat Kings or something. And I'd be riding the bus around and writing about junior hockey and that had been the hockey that I grew up on. And I read the local paper every day and I thought it would be pretty cool to, to do that as a job. Mm-hmm. And just tell us a little bit about like, obviously you went, you were at the Globe and Mail for a long time. And then obviously your transition to 
um, the athletic. Just tell us a bit about like what your next steps were after uh, undergrad or after your um, degree at uh, Ryerson or TMU now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not used to the new names. So no, I can. <laughs> um. So so Ryerson, I was I was a sports editor at the newspaper there. I was only there a year and a half because the grad program is just it's relatively short. It's four semesters, and uh, I was working at the school newspaper. Uh, I, I got an internship at the National Post, and I was there. It was the year of the lockout, the full wow. season lockout. So I was trying to be a hockey writer in two thousand four or five, and there was no hockey. So I went to the National Post as an intern. I was there January of 05. I started and I wanted to write about hockey and there's no hockey. So it was like, I was writing about like NHL players who were playing in Europe. I would interview them or I would write about like junior hockey that was going on. I was like desperate to try and find stories, but I I, I enjoyed it. And uh, I wrote some some stories that they ran kind of on the the second page, like big features and stuff like that. And it was really good experience. Uh, and they offered me a job in the summer, um, but I also got offered a job as an editor at the Globe and Mail and uh, uh, an internship at the Globe and Mail. Um, and I decided to do that. I decided to go somewhere else, get some different experience. And at the Globe and Mail, I worked on the news desk uh, three or four days a week. And then I worked on the sports desk one or two days a week. And I was working nights and reading stories and um, I would do a little bit of writing in, in sports, like kind of in my, my spare time. And, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's how it started for me. So, uh, coming out of that summer, I got hired on part-time. And, um, so I was working at the globe part-time just as an editor, I was freelancing and writing a little bit. Um, and I also had my own website. I started in, when I was still at Ryerson, I started my own website. It was, it was a blog. It was a blogspot blog, which sounds ridiculous now, uh, I started that in 2004 and, um, yeah, so that was, that was pretty much my life. You know, I was, I was working like four to midnight at the globe wow. and during the day, during the day I would be like doing my own website. And then on the weekends I would be freelancing for the globe as well. I'd be writing some stuff. So that would, that was like, after I got out of school, I did that for three or four years. Mm-hmm. And and with that, like you you mentioned being on a news desk, like what did you learn from that that maybe translated into being a a hockey writer? What would you say? Um, I, I I learned I learned how to like how to how to write to the standard. I think of a place like the Globe and Mail, like just you know when you're an editor, it's really about you're seeing the story from a much different perspective. And I think that I think that people now, when they see a story that I send in, it's, it's going to be pretty clean just because I came up in that mindset of, of editing things. And, you know, it, it, even now, you know, at the athletic, you know, my job is, is a, a, as an editor, as a manager, that's, that's the majority of my job now. It's not writing. And, uh, I, I know a lot of people know me primarily as a writer, but most of my career, the majority of my career, I've actually been a, an editor a lot of the time. Um, you know, and I think that, um, it taught me to be meticulous. It taught me to be uh, really careful. Um, and it just taught me how to be really um, concise. You know, the newspaper was interesting because you would have word count limits mm. and you would have to, lots of times as an editor, you would have to cut a story down and you would have to, in, in you'd be on a deadline. You know, you'd get like, let's say I was working four to midnight. They would give me whatever, six or seven stories to work with for the night. And I was doing, I was laying out the pages and stuff as well. And you would have to find a way to make it all fit and cut stories down and work on deadlines. So 
there was a lot of like kind of the time pressure and um, working with other people's stories. In some cases, like I was working with people that were really high end journalists because I was working in the news department and there would be, you know, like these, these big features or I'm trying to think of like, you know, like someone like Kirk Macon, who was like a justice reporter at the Globe and Mail for 30 years or whatever, you'd get one of his stories and it's about a trial or a, a crime that's been committed or something. And it's like really hard journalism. And sometimes you have to get on the phone with the writer and talk them through the story. And for someone who coming out of school, I was like 24, I think when I started at the Globe, it was, it was intimidating, you know, coming from Kamloops and then here you're in, you know, all of a sudden you're in the Globe and Mail newsroom, but it was such a good learning experience just to see the way that these world-class reporters worked. And then by the time I became a reporter at the Globe, uh, four or five years later, I was, I was more than ready. I was really ready to do that because I could see, I saw how other people did it. And I learned a lot just from observing the way that they did their, their work. And, and with that, obviously you're, you mentioned it, but you're, an editor at the athletic primarily and and you you also talked about it, it, being an editor brings you a different kind of perspective to to stories and, and to maybe storytelling what what is that perspective that you'd say it is um hmm. maybe like a bigger picture perspective i think you know i i think that um i've always had a good eye for for a headline um for a lead for how a story is constructed like some of the like the technical pieces. And I think I learned some of that, you know, doing the, doing an English degree, uh, first of all. So I had a really strong foundation just kind of in writing in general. And, you know, I studied stuff like James Joyce and like some of like the really classic, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and all that kind of stuff. And I love doing that stuff. Um, so I think I had a really strong foundation just in grammar and everything mm -hmm. like that. Um, so, you know, I think even now when I, when I go in and I write, I, I, I sort of write like an editor a little bit, I think. So that's just kind of the way that my brain is, is wired. Who edits your pieces? That's a good question. Um, it depends what it is. If it's kind of like a run of the mill thing, we have a desk, we, we have an NHL desk, um, and we have some really talented young editors who work there. Um, so that's kind of like, that's always available for any of our hockey writers to send stories to. Uh, we have, uh, I can give them a shout out there. We have SJ Mar and Ambika Sharma right now are on our desk and they do a great job. And sometimes they work crazy hours. Like they started six in the morning or they work till two in the morning or, but they, they edit some of my stories. And sometimes if I have something that's like a little bit more complicated uh, or like a feature or something that needs more work, I'll send it to, um, you know, we have, we have enterprise editors and, in, in our group, we have 11, including myself, we have 11 editors just in the NHL department at The Athletic. So it's a pretty big team. And uh, depending on what it is and when you file and stuff, one of those different editors might take a look at it. And and I want to go a little bit to the Leafs, obviously the team you kind of cover when you are writing. Just what's it like to cover them in such a big hockey market in, in Toronto with so much press coverage? Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. You know, that's, I, I got lucky, you know, when I was coming up, I just, I wanted to cover kind of any team. I was, you know, I remember coming out of school, I applied to Columbus and Detroit and like, I, I just, I wanted to cover an NHL team. That was like my dream. And even I had opportunities, you know, to cover the Winnipeg Jets at one point. Uh, I remember interviewing for a Montreal Canadiens job, Vancouver Canucks, um, you know, so it just, 
was kind of like happenstance that I ended up covering the Leafs. Um, one of our Leafs writers left, Tim Warnsby, went to the CBC. Um, you know, at that point, I had been at the Globe for four and a half years, you know, and I was getting job offers from other places. And, you know, I, I kind of put my hand up and said, I'd, I'd love to have a chance to audition to replace Tim and, and cover the Leafs. Um, so, you know, I was still working as an editor and then they would give me like a night off and say, go cover this game or can you go cover practice today or whatever. So I did that for a year, one season. I think that was like, I want to say 07, 08 was my first season being around the Leafs. Um, but it's pretty interesting. You know, I wasn't that far removed from being from Kamloops, never having been in an NHL dressing room, never having been in any, you know, I hadn't even been in like a junior hockey dressing room. A little bit from like freelancing and stuff, but I didn't have that much experience. And then all of a sudden you show up at Leafs practice in 2007 and there's whatever, 30 media there and cameras and all this stuff. And, and you're talking to people like Curtis Joseph or like people that you watched on TV for years. And, you know, it was, um, I think it was good for me that I was older by that point. I was like, I think it was 29. Okay. I think it was good for me that I was a little bit older and I had experience. I had been around. I felt like I was more than ready to to do it. You know, I see so at the athletics, some of our people come in and like we had, we hired Harmon Dale in Vancouver. Yeah. He was 18, 19 years, 18, 19 years old when he started. And it's like, I don't think I would have been ready to do it then. Um, so, but even then, like Toronto is, Toronto's a crazy market to jump into and it's, it's hyper competitive. And back in 2007, there was way more media. Like you would go to a game and there would be four or five writers from the Toronto Sun three or four writers from the Toronto star, the globe would have two or three people there. National post would sometimes have two people there. So just from newspapers, just for writers, there'd be like whatever, 12, 14, 15 writers there. And everyone's trying to write the best story. And, you know, I was competing with people that had been covering the Leafs for a long time that had been around and they knew the history of the team and they knew the, the alumni and they had, they knew some of the players and they knew the coaches and the staff and, I, I didn't know anybody, you know, I was this, I didn't have any real connections or anything. So, um, but you know, it was, it was, it was really cool. I mean, the, 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 I should back up the first time I got to go do a Leafs game as a media member, I was an intern at the hockey news. Hmm. It was 2004 and it was the playoffs. It was a oh, second wow. round of the play. It was a second round of the playoffs. Um, you know, I hadn't even been in Toronto a year. And, uh, Jason Kay, who was the editor in chief of the hockey news, he seemed like he really liked me. And he's like, come, come to the playoff game tonight. Um, that's the first time I got to be in an initial press box, 2004 playoff, second round flyers. Wow. And I remember standing up there in the press box. I didn't even have a seat. Cause like I was nobody, I was just standing, um, behind like rows of fans or whatever in the press box. And I just remember the game was starting and everyone went crazy. And I was up in the press box and I was like, I had this feeling is like, this is what I want to do. Like, this is like, okay. this is, yeah, that was like, this is, I had this moment of clarity that I was like, I want, I want to, I don't know. It felt like I was home or something. Yeah, okay. And it's so funny. Now I think about that sometimes because that's 2004, that's 19 years ago. So sometimes now when I go to a playoff game, like against the Panthers or whatever, and I'm up in that same press box. And sometimes I just think like how lucky I am that like, I had this, like this goal way back when, and now I'm there. And so even though I've been around the team now 14, 15 years consistently, it's still, there's still that feeling that that this is what I wanted to do and, and I'm doing it. And it's that it's a great feeling to have. Yeah, yeah. And and with that, like 
<clears throat> like when you got kind of your first kind of inroads in like 07, 08, how did you develop relationships with players, management, coaches? Like, how did you do that when, as you said, a lot of other members had much more experience or connections with players and the rest? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> it, it, it's interesting. You know, when I started, the team was really struggling. Yeah. They were really, really struggling. Like, they were, you know, and they were coming out of the, like the JFJ years. I think when I started, I think Cliff Fletcher might have been the GM. There might have been a little bit of JFJ in there. I can't remember exactly. I I I, re- I think I was around the team full time by the when the at the time when Cliff Fletcher was the GM. Okay. And then uh, and then they they brought in Brian Burke in November of two thousand eight. And I grew up in BC and I had watched Brian. I had listened to Brian Burke on the radio since I was a kid because mm-hmm. he was assistant GM of the Canucks back in the early nineties. Yeah. And the Canucks was the team. I was all I always loved sports radio as a kid. I was listening when I was like 11, 12 years old. Every night there was this show in Vancouver that was on. It was like 10 to midnight or something. Uh-huh. And I would stay up and like not get any sleep and go to school the next day. And uh-huh. and Brian Burke was a guest on that show. It's called Sports Talk with Dan Russell. And um, so I had li- I had grown up like listening to Brian Burke. And then I watched when he became GM of the Canucks in 98. The Canucks were a complete disaster, like a mess. And he turned them around. So I had a lot of admiration for Brian Burke. And I had really watched closely what he did in Vancouver and how he built kind of that team that over the the medium term went on to make the cup final. And, you know, they had all those those strong teams. He really put that foundation there because they were a complete disaster when he got there as GM. So I remember I had just started covering the Leafs and all of a sudden Brian Burke's the GM. It's like, Oh, well, this is going to be interesting. I know everything about Brian Burke. Like I know his whole career path. I followed it really closely. And I was saying to my friends who are Leafs fans at the time, I was like, this is going to be good for the Leafs. Brian Burke's really good. He did a really good job in Vancouver. He did a good job in Anaheim. This is going to be great for them. This is what they need. They need someone smart to come in. And the interesting thing was, is that Brian Burke wasn't great for the Leafs. Brian Burke started making a lot of mistakes and doing things wrong. And I I don't know what it was, but, you know, right from the beginning, I kind of wrote with a little bit of an edge and I was never afraid to be critical of the team, whether it was players or the coach or the GM and even when I was a young guy and even when I didn't know anybody, that was kind of the mindset that I went into the job with. Yeah. And uh, it was it was tough because, you know, I was one of the more critical people, I think, of the team and the organization at the time. And um, there were definitely battles that I had with with Ron Wilson and, and Brian Burke. And um, it was it was it was challenging, you know, to be early in your career and to be kind of thrown into the fire with this dysfunctional organization, this team's losing a lot of games. Like they early on when I was covering the team, they traded the first, the two first round picks, and then yeah. they finished second. And then they finished second last. Like yeah. I think that was my first full season around the team. Wow. The Kessel trade, and it was it was a disaster. And I just couldn't, you know, I had I had kind of like honed my writing style on my website, and it was very much like log style, column style, like opinionated analysis. I was using some analytics at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's how I started writing for the paper. And it was way different, I think, than anyone else that was writing for a newspaper, the way that I was writing in whatever, 2008. And I was looking at things like possession and Corsi and some of the advanced stats, PDO, some of the stats that were available back then and applying them to these, this mess of a Leafs team that was like finishing second last and kind of writing about like structurally what was wrong with the roster and what was wrong with the mistakes that they were making. And the team hated it. 
the team, like they hate, like management hated it. The coaches hated it. The players hated it. Like, so I, there were a lot of people that didn't like me and you had to go to work every day in the dressing room with, there's a lot of people there that giving you this look like, who's, who's this guy? Who's this, who's this skinny, nerdy young guy who I've never seen before, who's carving us in the national newspaper. So, um, you know, I think in hindsight, I probably should have been a little bit more diplomatic and like probably built a few more sources and things like that. In, In the beginning with Brian Burke, it was fine. Like we had, we had a decent relationship, but the more that the team kind of spiraled and, and struggled and the more critical I was, that relationship disintegrated. And same with the, you know, relationships with some of the players and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was definitely, but I was, I was pretty green. Like I was figuring out how to do the job and, um, it was definitely a challenging environment to do that as a young person. And then with that, how, how are, how were, and are your relationships with like Kyle Dubas and like, obviously now Brad Trilling and you just got on the job. So maybe you don't have as much of a relationship and just the players themselves now on the current Maple Leafs team. Yeah. I mean, my relationship with Dubas was fine. I mean, I, there's a perception from some people out there that were friends or buddies or something, or like he was the, the, the main source for us or something, which is completely not true. Like I, I actually got to know Lou Lamorello and Brian Burke and Dave Nonis better than I ever got to know Kyle Dubas. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I didn't spend any personal time with Kyle Dubas. Like we I never, we never hung out. We never had a beer. We didn't, you know, I don't, I don't know his anything about his family or I don't really know anything about him, to be honest. It was a very, the way that, that in my experience, the way that Kyle Dubas deals with the media is very arm's length kind of professional Mm -hmm. relationship. So there wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of, I don't know, like, you know, like I had, I had, I had had a drink before with Dave Nonis. I had Mm -hmm. had a meal with Lou Lamorello. I had, I had done like some of that kind of stuff. Kyle Dubas, like that never happened. Like there was never that kind of relationship building. So as a person, I didn't really get to know him and everything that we wrote about him was just about, you know, kind of like trying to assess the moves that he made. And, you know, unlike the Brian Burke tenure, like there were, you could see the positive momentum that was there with Shanahan and Dubas in charge and bringing in Brandon Pridham and these other smart people in the front office, you could see the upward trajectory of the team. So naturally a lot more of what we were writing was positive. And the really strange thing is that I had covered, so I'd covered the Leafs for eight years at the Globe and Mail and they had been bad for all of those years. And then Mm -hmm. as soon as I left, I left in 2016. Yeah. I left right after Matthews got drafted and I didn't leave, like it, it had nothing to do with the timing, but I leave in 2016, fall of 2016, right after they had drafted Matthews, no one really thought the team was going to be good or make the playoffs but they ended up having that dream kind of first season there where they, they, the kids were so good that they ended up making the playoffs and playing Washington. And it was so good for us at the athletic in the beginning, because we were this new outlet. No one had ever heard of us. And we could, we were able to write a lot of positive stories about who are these new guys and what are they doing and how are the Leafs winning? And like, how good is this team really? And like, it was, it was a really, really fun time to cover the team, especially because I had just been through eight years of like, drudgery and like carving the team and like what's wrong with this team and all this kind of stuff. So it was refreshing all of a sudden to have a much different story to write when I started at the athletic and, and you could really see the readers responded. And like, we had people signing up in the beginning when, when the athletic launched, it was just in Chicago for the first like eight or nine months. And they were kind of test driving 
the model and seeing how it worked. And then they launched Toronto was the second market. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Like we, we were, so the, when I started the whole company only had like eight writers or something like it was, we were very, very small. You know, I was one of the, one of the first people hired. I was hired within the first year of the company existing. Um, so we were trying to get people to sign up and it's not like now where like you have this, when you sign up for the athletic, you have this bundle and you get 410 writers or whatever. And you, you know, coverage of like all these different sports. It wasn't like that in the beginning. It was like sign up and you can get, if you're a hockey fan, you can get Blackhawks coverage from Scott powers and some Leafs coverage. And that's it. That's all we had at the time. So it was a different value proposition, but even still Leafs fans were just the, I don't know. It was like a moment in time and like the support that we got in those first six months when I joined the athletic was, it was amazing. And it speaks to the power of, of the fan base. And, you know, and I didn't know when I left the globe, if it was going to work or not, if people were going to sign up and pay. Um, but you know, it, it turned out that what I had been doing at the globe and what I had been building, that audience came with me and it was super gratifying. So, and I think a lot of those people that signed up that first year, are still with them. I mean, it's almost seven years later at the athletic. I a lot of those people are still there and I still hear from them when I write. So. Mm-hmm. And, and with that, like, I want to go a little bit to the Leafs and just obviously like, what do you make of where they are right now with a predicament with a new GM? There's a lot of kind of things up in the air. Um, just where, where do, where do you stand on this team? And I know you've had a lot of kind of questions about defense and, just, you know, the, obviously the Nylander contract. So just give us a little bit about like how you see the state of this team uh, as we speak. Yeah. I mean, I think this is going to be a really interesting season because, you know, I, some fans that I talk to are really doom and gloom and like, Oh, you know, the, we, we missed our best chance. And, but this is still a good team, you know, and I look at the state of the Atlantic division and I see a Boston team that's going to be weaker, a Tampa team that's going to be weaker. Florida's going to be missing their two best defensemen for long stretches of the season. I, I don't think Buffalo, Ottawa, Detroit are ready to challenge. Montreal's going to be rebuilding again. There's a window here. Like the Leafs should be able to step in and contend to win the division. Like there's, I don't see another season where Boston has a historic point total or even the year before Florida had whatever they had, 122 points. Like, I think you might be able to win the Atlantic this year with 113 or 114, and the Leafs have shown us that they can do that. So, but I would say, you know, in terms of the roster that Brad Tree Living's put in place, I think it's a little bit weaker than it was last year and probably even in the last two years. So we'll see if it plays out that way. I mean, there's some wild cards there. You know, how good's Matthew Nye is going to be? What's going to, how good's the goaltending going to be? Does someone like Timothy Lilgren take the next step? Um, who am I forgetting? Who are some of the other wild cards? Uh, but I, I think, I think overall, this is a good team. Like this is still a, this is still a top six or seven team in the NHL for sure. Mm-hmm. So they're good. They're going to make the playoffs barring a disaster. And then, you know, it's there. I think what Brandon Shanahan is trying to do is take as many rolls of the dice as he can with this, this core group and put them in a position where they have a chance to, to push through in advance. But it's it's very interesting that they're rolling back. It looks like they're rolling back the core four again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really the core five with Morgan Riley there too. Unless there's some kind of a Nylander trade here before the season starts, it's really the same core and they're looking for a different result. And it's just, it's um, I can't think of another example in pro sports where so many, uh, much of the core has been kept through so many years without breaking through. It's really, really interesting. 
what do you make of that bet? Like, do you think that, like, if you were um, obviously Brad Trilliving now, like, would you have kind of brought the core five in this case back, or, or what would you have done? I think that they, it's it, it's a a really difficult situation with the way that the the Salary. general manager situation played out. Like they were trying to bring Dubis back, and if Dubis came back, who knows? You know if there's one of the core pieces would have been moved or not, but he would have been in a much better position to evaluate and make that trade, you know, because it's something that I'm sure he had, he had been thinking about and looking into for years. You know, it's not like they, it's not like they never in, traded a core piece, but it's not like they never thought about it before in the past. So he would have been ready to execute on something, assuming there was some sort of trade available. But when, when when Dubis when that falls through when that goes sideways the way that it did, yeah. and then they have to do they go through the GM search and they bring in Brad Tree Living. I can't remember what day Brad Tree Living started, but it, it was pretty deep into the off season already. He's not in a great. And then you got the the no movement clauses coming in for Matthews and Marner. No trade ten team no trade clause coming in for Nylander. Uh, Tavares with the no move saying he doesn't want to go anywhere. Uh, and you probably don't you don't want to trade Riley. I mean you know. So like, I think tree living was put in a spot where it was pretty challenging to break up the core in with, with like the parameters that he had to work with. I mean, and, really the only one he could potentially move is probably Nylander. And maybe that still happens. Like maybe the, like, I know the contract talks have gone terribly. So maybe at some point they decide that's the right move, but it's, it's interesting because I think that to listen to Shanahan talk about it, you know, he's, he's endorsing the core again. And, you know, right after Dubas was gone, it came out, Chris Johnston reported that Brandon Shannon had met with all the core four players and said, we want to have you back. So that was, that decision was made before there was even a new GM in place. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, a lot of this is going to be obviously on Brandon Shanahan now, and it's going to be less about people evaluating, evaluating that this is Kyle Dubas's team and realize that, you know, especially this year, it's really going to be Brendan Shanahan's team, the way that we're going to be talking about it. And and I think, frankly, looking back, we probably should have talked about the team more as being Shanahan's team than just, like, there was so much focus on Dubas every year, but Shanahan was very heavily involved. And, you know, one of the the sticking points for Dubas leaving was, was the autonomy factor. So um, we'll never know, I don't think, for sure. Shanahan doesn't want to talk about it. Dubas doesn't want to talk about it. Nobody in the front office wants to kind of spill all of the dirt or, you know, who made which decisions. So we'll probably never know who did made, made which calls on which free agents and et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's pretty clear that Shanahan's had an influence all the way along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, not just Nylander, but Matthews is one year away from free agency. Everyone knows that, but it seems as though I've heard you talk about a lot of people say that essentially he's probably has some sort of agreement or close to like, he's going to come back uh, for a, you know, a longer term contract. Like where do you see that contract coming in with how much term, how much AAV and how good will that contract be for the Leafs? Do you think? Well, I mean, the good thing is you keep Austin Matthews, right? Like you keep one of the best players in the game. That's it. Um, the thing I would correct with what you said is I, I, I don't think it's going to be a long-term contract. Like I think the longest you might see would be another five-year deal. Um, you know, and I think that the number is going to be, it probably start with a 13. Yeah. So my guess is, my guess is you're probably looking at 
I'll, I'll be, I would say three to five years at 13 something is probably what's going to happen. How good is it for the Leafs? Well, I think what it does is that over the course of that term of the deal, you've got, he's Matthews is already under contract for this coming season. So you're adding another three to five years onto that. So you're getting him for four to six years, potentially where that contention window is theoretically open for that period of time. Hmm. So that's the benefit, you know, when the cap's going to go up, a little probably between four, four and a half million next year. So some of that increase is going to be Austin Matthews going up in value from he's at he's um he's gonna go up in value from eleven point six four right now up to let's say thirteen five. So it's an extra one point nine million on the cap. We're in the so he's gonna eat up probably less than half of that new money that's on the cap. I don't think it's going to hurt the Leafs, Austin Matthews at 13-5. The question is, what number does Nylander come in at? What happens with Marner the year after? Um, you get out from Tavares in two years, so that's going to give you a lot of cap space. I mean, you look ahead down the road with the Leafs, it's really interesting. You look like two years down the line, they have almost nobody signed. Yeah, like There's hardly anybody under contract. It's like Yarncrock and Riley and who else has signed a longer deal? Like there's just, there's not a lot of players that are going to be under contract. Yeah, no, I think that's it. And and with that, like, wh- how do you feel about the decor? Like, I know that you've written and talked about just like the Klingberg move and just in terms of like, how confident do you feel in this decor? Because I feel it's taken a pretty big step back, but how do you feel about the current state? Well, I mean, I think the thing I would say is that the, the, it's a well-coached team. You know, I think Sheldon Keefe's done a good job of, really cutting down kind of the chances against. And, you know, we've seen, the I think, the last two years that the defensive profile of the Leafs is pretty good. Like, they've been top five or certainly at least top ten in a lot of the defensive metrics. And that's not all personnel. That uh, Some of that is is the system that they play. And the other part of it that it is is that they've, over, over the last few years, they've had really good defensive forwards, Mitch Marner, mm. Austin Matthews, you know, even bringing in Ryan O'Reilly last year, you know, so they've been, and I think that Klingberg is, is going to be an issue because he's not that strong defensively. And he's certainly fallen off the last two and a half years from what he was in Dallas. But the other thing I would say is that the forwards that they brought in are not good defensively either. Yeah, And that's a red flag for me is that, you know, Tyler Bertuzzi's not known as a great two-way player. Max Domi's definitely not known as a great two-way player. Ryan Reeves is not a great two-way player. So you're introducing those three probably on three different lines, and they're probably all going to bring with them some degree of defensive weakness. And that concerns me a little bit, you know, because all of a sudden you have the turnover not just on the back end, and, and Giordano's another year older, Brody's another year older. It it To me, it kind of looks like, the third and fourth line and the blue line aren't finished yet. Like mm-hmm. it looks like the pieces don't really fit together. And it was interesting the other day, a couple of days ago, Radko Gouda is coming out and saying that the Leafs yeah. made an offer to him and wanted him. That doesn't surprise me. Um, and he would have been a better fit stylistically than Klingberg, just in terms of the way that he plays. Maybe you could play him with Riley, kind of fill the Luke Shen role. Um, he would have been overpaid. You know, he got $4 million a year on with, with some term in Anaheim, which is too much, but at least I think it fits more with what tree living was looking for. So part of the question for me is I don't know if he's done yet. I don't know if he's looking at this and thinking, you know what? I added some good scoring with Domi and Bertuzzi. Maybe I can subtract some scoring. If I move Nylander, maybe I can look at potentially changing what we're doing on the back end. Uh, tree living had tried to trade TJ Brody in the past to the Leafs. Yeah. Um, 
what was that 2019 four years ago um so i don't know i don't i don't know if he's finished right now to me the team looks unfinished and i think if they go into the year with the roster constructed the way they have they're going to have a harder time keeping the puck out of their net especially with two relatively inexperienced goalies as well no for sure and you had a piece on the athletic recently just about their cap situation they're over the the salary cap and they'd have to make some moves to get pretty close to cap compliant but like, is that a, a money out kind of situation? Is it just waving guys? Like, what do you think happens with the Leafs in terms of how getting underneath the cap to? Yeah, so- I mean, we've seen it the last couple of years where they've been so tight that they just go down to a league minimum roster. Like they go down to a 20 player roster. So I suspect unless there's another trade coming, like unless there's like a Nylander or unless they're acquiring a defenseman or something then yeah, that's what they're going to have to do. They're going to have to go down to 20 players and they're going to have to put some players like probably like Connor Timmons on waivers and cross their fingers that they don't lose him. Mm-hmm. And 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 with that, like, I guess just what do you think like the expectations for this team are? Because you said they're incomplete, like as you see them right now, but is there a way or, or what way can they become maybe a cup contender as I think most Leafs fans would hope they'd be going into this year? Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I still think they're like a top six, top seven team in the league. Like I'd be surprised if they fall off dramatically, you know, I mean, how many points did they have last year? Like one eleven or something like that. Like, I think if I had to pick right now, I would say they're going to finish with like five fewer points than last year based on the roster that they've got. So it's not like, it's not like the changes that they've made are fatal. Like, I think I still think it's going to be a good team. I just, I look at like the D pairs and I look at the, the line combinations and like, how do you make a third and fourth line that makes sense with like, you don't have an, enough centers really. It sounds like they don't want to play Domi at center. So is David Camps on your third line center and who are you playing him with? Are you playing him with Domi? Or are you like you typically you would want David Camp to, to center a defensive line, a checking line like they have in the past, but I don't know if they're going to be able to do that. And I don't, you know, and so if you construct that as a defensive line, then maybe you want your other bottom six line to be an offensive line, but then you've got Ryan Reeves on that line and you're not going to play Ryan Reeves with camp. And so they've got pieces that to me don't fit together. And I don't know what, how Sheldon keeps going to make that work, but again, maybe the roster's not done yet. Like maybe there's a shoot a drop where there's another move coming. That's going to change what this looks like. I, if it was me, if I was the GM, I would want to make more additional moves. Cause I, I just feel like this isn't all going to work, but the Leafs have their, their star players are good enough. Their coaching staff is good enough. I, I think their goaltending is going to be fine. Okay. Um, I think I, I think they're going to be okay if they do go in with this lineup. And the other thing too that I should mention is that they can also do at the trade deadline they can they can do what they did this past year and and add pieces. So wherever the holes are, like if it turns out that the blue line is a real problem and Giordano's fallen off and can't play, or you know Jake McCabe looks like he's better suited to be on the third pair or whatever, they can make that move and add a blue liner. Or if the goalie's really struggling, you need to add a goalie, you can add a goalie in February. And mm-hmm. and conversely, if or if you need something up front. Yeah. And the other thing too is that, that I would say is that the Nylander situation, they might go into the year with that not being resolved. And maybe that's a move that they want to pull during the season is move Nylander. Uh, that'd be a pretty big move uh, in the middle of the, the season. I, I guess just like just moving forward, like like where do you like what what's the likelihood that this team is comprised of the core four, do you think, after this upcoming season? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, you know, Marner's got the no move. 
Matthews has the no move and I am pretty sure is going to stay. Like I'd be very surprised if Matthews doesn't resign. Um, the big one is Nylander though, you know, and like Tavares is going to be here. I, I think that, so I don't know what, so basically what you're asking, I think in that question is like, is Nylander going to stay? I guess. So. Um, it feels unlikely to me they're going to be able to get an extension done at this point. Mm-hmm. Maybe something changes. Maybe he has a change of heart. Maybe the Leafs decide to come up on their number, but they, they're they really far apart right now on it. And I think Nylander wants to feel, he wants to feel like he's close with the other core four players. Yeah. Like he, he, he feels like his production and his results aren't as far back as Marner and Tavares and Matthews as he has been salary wise. And he wants to close that gap. So he wants to come in in the, you know, 10 million, maybe high nine range. And I don't think the Leafs have any intention of going there. So if Matthews is signing for, let's say, 13.5, Nylander might not be inclined to sign for 8.7. He might just feel like that's not enough, and he's going to take his chances on the open market. And really the one thing that the Leafs can offer that isn't going to be there in free agency is the eighth year on the contract. Mm-hmm. That has to have some value for sure because that in that eighth year, Nylander is going to be, I believe, 35, 34. So if he can get a big salary in that, that eighth year, then that has to have some value. But... Right now, they seem too far apart. So I would say the likelihood that all core four are back for another season after this one, I would put it at like probably like 30%. And that number's probably even lower if you go two years from now because does who knows what happens? Does Tavares come back? Does, do they Are they able to get a, a deal done with Marner? And part of it's going to depend on what success do they have this year. And, and with that, like it, do, it does sound as though this might be the kind of last dance or last hurrah for this group. I feel like we've been saying that for yeah, I know that's what I was going to say. Like we, I, yeah. like we've written that story. Like it, <laughs> it, it, it felt, it felt like when they ran it back after the Montreal loss, and yeah. then they still fell short again. It's like this feels like you got to change something. Uh, and then when they didn't, yeah, you know, part part of I think what's happening right now too in the market, and I I don't know if you feel this way or you hear this, but part of what I hear from Leafs fans, like when I play beer league hockey or whatever, the guys are like, I just like, I'm bored of this team. I'm bored of this core. I've, I've like, I just, there's so many people now that don't care about the regular season and don't watch the games. And sometimes I'll text some of my friends who I know are diehard Leafs fans. I'll be at a game and like, Oh, did you see that goal? Or like, Hey, that was a pretty good game or a bad game or whatever. And they're like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not paying attention. I'm not watching. And it's like, like they're, they're losing people. And that's not to say that you should change your roster just to like keep people interested but it's, it's interesting that they have a team that finishes with, you know, 111 points or I, for some reason, I can't remember what the exact number was this year. And, and, and people are like tuning out of that. Like that's, that's a problem. And part of it I think is, is with the playoff format. Cause people yeah. are just like, Oh, yeah. going to play Boston again. going to play Tampa again, whatever, you know? And I think that for the Leafs to like bring those people back, they're going to have to like really show that they're different, that they've changed and that, they're not going to have any more series like the Florida one where they're just come out limp. And the first two games in the Florida series were, were terrible. And we've seen that way too often in the playoffs from this team. Do you have like, I, I almost said, do you have any confidence? What level of confidence do you have that they can finally kind of prove that they are a good playoff team and win, like go deeper in the playoffs? Like, is this like a thing in their core that, I mean, I'm sure you've been asked this for four or five years now, but just is it is it something they can overcome in terms of finally getting over the hurdle and, and being successful in the playoffs? I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. I don't think Shanahan knows that. I mean, he's making the bet that they are going to be able to get over that. And 
you know, it's there's parallels in Shanahan's career. Like he didn't win until he was older and he won with the Detroit team that a lot of people said wasn't built to win. People said things like, you know, Datsuk can't win in the playoffs. And I mean, people even said Iserman can't win in the playoffs. Like I remember those, like there was a lot of, you go back, like I, I think Datsuk struggled in his first, whatever, four, five postseasons and didn't have a lot of production. And I don't think he scored a goal in the playoffs until relatively deep into his career. And so people were saying all this stuff about all these great players and I think, I think it was the first year Shanahan went to Detroit. They won and they broke through. And Shanahan had that experience as well, playing with Team Canada in 2002. People mm-hmm. were saying, oh, you know, Canada, Team Canada is building the team wrong. They can't, they can't win internationally. And then they broke through there too. So, you know, I think from his perspective, it's like I've seen stay the course work before. Yeah. I've seen it work in Washington with Ovechkin. Like they held, you know, Ovechkin yeah. finally wins the cup at 33 years old. Seen it happen in St. Louis where St. Louis was good for a long period of time. And they finally broke through, you know, we have seen this around the league. The question is like, is this group going to figure it out and be able to do it or not? And we've seen glimpses of that, but I, I feel like even this year in the postseason, even though they won around yeah. Tampa was really banged up. They didn't play very well. Vasilevsky didn't play very well. The Leafs weren't that impressive in that series. They had played a lot better against Tampa the year before. So there's just, there's red flags there. And it's tough because we know they're a good regular season team. We know that Marner and, and Matthews are, and Nylander are amazing, fantastic players. But the question is, can they figure it out? And 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 I, I feel like they're going to be, well, I mean, we'll see how the season plays out, but I feel like they're going to be at even more of a disadvantage next year in the playoffs because the team's not going to be quite as good as it's been the last two years. Yeah, yeah. So, well, to to leave that on a optimistic note for the Leafs, uh, we can end it there. But I, I just want to give you the floor. Anything at the Athletic that you want to plug? And 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 thanks again so much for coming on this uh, podcast. Yeah, no problem. I mean. I would just encourage people to check it out. If you've never read The Athletic, download the app and have a look. Um, you know, you can listen to our podcast. They've, they've got advertising, so we don't charge for that. But, you know, what we've built over the time I've been there, like I said, when I started, we had, I think we had three hockey writers, and now we have 37. You know, we have people in almost every market. It's really comprehensive coverage. We have multiple people dedicated to covering analytics. We have multiple insider types. We have... um multiple people covering prospects. I feel like it's a really comprehensive, well-rounded group covering the NHL. And, you know, even just for, you know, like some of the investigative stuff that, that Katie Strang and Dan Robson do, I feel like the work that, that Katie and Dan do that alone is worth the price for the year with how cheap the athletic is. So then everything else you get on top of that. And then you add in the coverage we have of, you know, English, English premier league and, and the NFL and the NBA and MLB and, you know, I, I feel like it's such a great product and I still feel like we need to, even though I've been there almost seven years, we still need to keep getting the word out and mm. keep getting people to sign up and check it out because, you know, as, as I'm sure you've heard, like the media is, it's, it's a yeah. really tough time for the media in Canada, in, in hockey. Um, there's been layoffs in a lot of places. There's been radio stations closing. Yeah. There's been people losing their job in TV. You know, it's not just it's not just newspapers. I mean, newspapers, Globe and Mail, where I, I worked at the Globe and Mail for almost 12 years. The sports department, when I started there, was around 25 people worked there. Wow. And now it's three or four. Oof. And it's that's kind of this where the industry's at right now. And it's scary. Yeah. And so I feel like the athletics been one of the few good news stories over the last six or seven years. You know, we've been able to build something, like I said, we got 11 editors, we got 37 hockey writers. We built something really special and we're just trying to keep that going. And 
what I would say to people is like, if you like our writers, like come and support us. Cause you know, that's what, that's what the industry needs. We need more good news stories. We need more people willing to, to break out their credit card and support people in order to continue to keep people employed in our industry. Yeah. Is that, that sounds just like the way that we have to keep the industry alive is just to like, if you know, good writers at, at the athletic or wherever, like pay for content because otherwise like, we might not have any, I don't know. I, but it's, I mean, it's like I said, you know, when I started going to the Leafs games, there would be like 13, 14 writers at the game just to cover the Leafs. And now sometimes you go and there's like two really, you know, and, or sometimes we'll go in the athletic, we'll have three people there and the other, the other publications will have like two combined or something. Like it's, it, yeah. it's incredible. The, the amount of contraction that there has been in the sports media, I don't think it gets talked about enough. Like it's been, I would wager in Canada, it's like hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people have lost their jobs. Like it's just like completely been depleted. So I think what we need, we need more good news stories. We need more, we need more startups. We need more innovation in the industry. We need more new publications. You know, I know there's people, the the Steve Dangle podcast network that those guys have started is a great story in Canada. Um, we need some more of that. There's good stories out in Vancouver. There's people I know, Matt Sakaris, who I worked with at the Globe. They've started their own show. Lots of independent podcasts. Ryan Pinder in Calgary. Uh, I'm going to forget some people. There's lots of people doing independent things now in all the different markets, and it's cool to see. It's cool to see people finding ways to succeed outside of the way that it used to be. Because I think that that's what we need. If we don't do that, then it's just going to shrivel up, and there's going to be nothing left. It sounds like that's kind of the the move or, or the play now that people have to kind of maybe go outside the 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 kind of institutions and media like TSN and Bell and you know even the Global Mail and others and and make their own kind of like SDPN and all the others you you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, and and the thing I would say too is that you know when I was at the Globe, I I was in in a union, I was making good money, I could have stayed there. I had a my son was one year old at the time, like I could have stayed there, and it would have been the safe move, but the thing I would say is that you, if you bet on yourself, sometimes, sometimes you're right. And off, you know, if you believe in your ability and your work ethic and all that, it's, it's worth it. And it's one of the best things I've ever done in my life was betting on myself. And it was great uncertainty. I remember that the day I walked out of the Globe Mail for the last time I was talking to people and there were a lot of people that thought I was nuts. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Like joining this thing no one's ever heard of to leave the Globe and Mail. And it was, it's been very, very rewarding to be on this journey. And I think, we just, we need more people to bet on themselves and more people to take chances because, you know, the old way is in big trouble. And I don't, it's not the fault of the individual writers or the people. Yeah. It's, uh-huh. it's like very, it's big, like macro things that have happened in the world. I mean, the internet and the, you know, ads going to Google and Facebook and like, it's, things are changing. And if you want to work in the media now, you have to innovate and you have to be able to adapt and change. And I'm sure there's going to be, you know, I'm 42 now. I've been in the industry almost 20 years. There's going to be more adaptations and more changes I'm going to have to make the rest of the way um, to stay relevant. And that's that's kind of like you're saying, that's kind of the way things are going. And there's not really any like safe places the way that there used to be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's a bad place to work. It just means there's more uncertainty. And you have to be comfortable with that if you're going to work in the media. My last question, because I just have that, was that something you saw when you made your tr- transition to the athletic that maybe old media was kind of dying and you kind of had to bet on yourself or was it? Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I would say probably the last two years I was at the Globe, I was like looking around for like, what's next? Like, well, we need something new has to happen here. And, 
you know, and it's, you could just see we were getting smaller every year, you know, the, the deadlines were getting earlier, the stories were getting shorter, you know, the work we were doing wasn't as good as it had been previously. And it was like, there's gotta be another way there's gotta be. And so when, when Adam Hansman, one of the founders of the athletic, he flew to Toronto and we had dinner in September, 2016, and I didn't know who he was. I didn't know what the athletic was, but we had this dinner and it went on for like three hours and we talked about all this stuff and he showed me the app and, and I was like, I was like, fuck, like maybe this is like, I don't know. I just knew deep down that something else had to be an answer. And like, we had to try something different. And the great thing is I went, I talked to my wife about it and she was like, yeah, go for it. And I, I think a lot of people wouldn't have said that, but I think she could see just that, like, I don't know that, that I wanted to do it, that I wanted to take a chance. And I'm so glad that I did, you know? So that's, part of the message for me, whether if you're young and getting started in the industry, like take a chance, like try and do something different, try and like fill a, a void that's not out there. And, you know, so that's, that's the positive message. There's a lot of negative messages out there. There's a lot of negative messages out there, like social media about the athletic. And I, I find some of that stuff really kind of confusing to be honest, because I feel like we're a good news story. I feel like we've hired lots of great people. Like we talked about earlier in the show. I mean, I can go down the list. Like I could list the number of great young hockey writers that we've been able to hire who like, if the athletic didn't exist, I don't know where, I don't know where they would be working. I don't know if they'd be in the industry, you know, uh, uh, Dom our our analytics guy, Shana Goldman, another analytics person, Sean McIndoe, um, not, not as young, but, <laughs> but you, you know, like he's someone who had lost his job at Grantland and Grantland had closed and didn't have anywhere to work full time and didn't have, you know, like benefits for his family and things like that. And we've been able to do that. So, uh, Joshua Cloak, uh, Scott Wheeler, Haley Salvian, uh, I mentioned Ambika and SJ are editors who are fantastic, uh, young people who we've been able to hire basically out of school, um, uh, Max Baltman in Detroit, Jesse Granger in Vegas, Peter Baugh in Colorado, Saad Youssef in Dallas, Daniel Nugent Bowman in Edmonton, Julian McKenzie in Calgary, uh, Morant in Winnipeg, Charlie O'Connor in Philly, Harmon in Vancouver, like Matt Fairburn has started with us in Buffalo. Um, like it's it's a long list of really, really talented people that, and like I said, like I if the athletic didn't exist, I don't know where all of our group would be right now. So you know, knock on wood, like hopefully we keep a good thing going and, and hopefully there's more innovation in the industry and hopefully more people take a chance and more people invest in sports journalism and in Canada and NHL journalism. Cause that's what we need. Yeah, no, of course, I guess just, I, this is the last one I promised, but what's next for the athletic upcoming in this upcoming season, what should fans just kind of expect from you guys? Yeah. I mean, like we're working through kind of our coverage plan right now, but you know, there's going to be all the teams going over to Sweden for the games in in Europe. We're going to have five people going to that. That's going to be a big part of what we're going to do. We want to lean more in on investigations. We want to be all over stories like the hockey Canada story. Um, We don't want to shy away from kind of the ugly side of hockey or like the, you know, some of the, the, the criminal cases and, and, and those kinds of things. Like we've really made a point to try and cover the hard news as well as we do some fun stuff too. Like we had, we do have down goes Brown. We do have Sean Gentile. We, we do have people that write kind of like whimsical stuff. And I think one of the things I love about the athletic is we're able to kind of balance that and do both of those things. Um, you know, last year we did a series called the NHL 99, where we profiled the top 99 players of the modern era. We're going to have another uh, sort of series like that, that we're not ready to kind of announce yet, but we have some big ideas and, 
you know, we're, we're definitely not done yet. And for me coming up uh, in November, it'll be seven years at the athletic and I'm, I'm fired up to be here as much as I was on in the first year. So it's, it's been a great place to work, a great journey. And I just, I love our team. I love all of our people. I'm sure that comes across as the way that I talk about them, but it's, it's such a fantastic place to work, such great energy. And honestly, the, the New York times bought us a year and a half ago and they've been a great partner for us. And I've really enjoyed working with them. And it's like working with one of the most successful media organizations on the planet and learning from them and them looking at the way we do things and saying, here's where you can be better. And it's, it's been really, really great to be a part of that. Well, James, thanks so much for taking the time. I I kept you a bit longer than I would have liked, but uh, I really, really appreciate this. And um, I'm looking forward to all your coverage in the upcoming season and uh, definitely uh, as well, all the the rest of the athletic uh, team. And uh, thanks so much again for taking the time and doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me.